First drug approved for those living with Alzheimer's in the United States in nearly 20 years. The FDA approval being taken as a hopeful sign for Canadian patients. Our health report. That's what it sounded like on major news shows last June when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced they'd approved aducanumab. It's a hard name to say, but it's a new drug for people with early stages of Alzheimer's disease. What's important is that it's the first new drug treatment in nearly 20 years for the condition that now affects 750,000 Canadians and about 50 million people worldwide. The new drug's been in clinical trials, and while the U.S. gave it a conditional approval so far because they want more testing done, it has patients and doctors who deal with dementia, including Alzheimer's, very excited. Health Canada has not approved it. It's reviewing the application now, and a decision is expected in the spring. And watching this all very closely is Dr. Sharon Cohen. She's a Toronto neurologist. She runs Canada's busiest memory clinic, and they've usually got over a dozen research projects on the go and clinical trials with different drugs and different treatments, hoping one of them, maybe aducanumab, will turn out to be the cure. So it's it's an exciting time in Alzheimer's disease. This is a very bad disease and we need new therapies and now we are on a completely different path than we were with with the previous therapies that we've had since you know for about 20 years and are not substantial enough and we and we look forward to more and more choices for patients and ultimately a prevention i'm ellen besner and this is what jewish canada sounds like for wednesday january the 5th 2022 welcome to the cjn daily sponsored by metropia January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month in Canada. We all know someone with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, or we've got personal experience in our own families. There are four drugs now approved in Canada to treat some of the symptoms, like Aricept, which is one of the most common drugs. It's for early and mild stages, but it stops working after the disease gets worse. There is no cure, and doctors expect one in three people will eventually be diagnosed with Alzheimer's if they live to a ripe old age. So it was big news when the FDA approved aducanumab. But now experts in Europe and also here in Canada are worried it's too risky to give it to patients as an infusion once a month because there's not enough evidence it works, they say, and there are big side effects like brain bleeding and swelling. And it costs a fortune, about $56,000 U.S. per patient. Coming up, Dr. Sharon Cohen will be here to unpack this latest research. But first, here's what's making news elsewhere in Canada right now. I'm Mark Schatzker in Toronto, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like. Did you hear about the suicide a week ago of that famous Israeli Haredi author, Rabbi Chaim Walder, who it turns out was a proven serial rapist and child molester? A rabbinic court said he'd assaulted at least 25 women, boys and girls over the years, all while selling millions of books aimed at the Haredi community and serving as a therapist and a bookstore owner in B'nai Brak. Now, a Canadian rabbi says he's decided to get rid of all of this man's books from his own house, even though his family loves them. First of all, Rabbi Daniel Karabkin of Beth Avraham Yosef Congregation in Thornhill says the material should be considered tainted. And not only that, Karabkin says Walder's victims shouldn't be further hurt by knowing the man's work is still being sold and used. 
You can read Rabbi Karopkin's full message on the CJN's website. Dr. Sharon Cohen is the director of the Toronto Memory Program and a professor at the University of Toronto, and she joins us now. We're talking uh, as Canada marks Alzheimer's Awareness Month. The FDA has approved a new treatment for Alzheimer's, aducanumab. Maybe we should unpack what this is and why it's so significant. Absolutely. Well, this was a a landmark uh, decision by the FDA in uh, June of 2021, so just a few months ago, to approve aducanumab, the first drug ever to treat the underlying pathobiology of the disease. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But aducanumab has had a very convoluted route to the market and uh, came with some controversy. Um, And the nature of its approval by the FDA was um, such that we call this an accelerated approval based on a biomarker, based on the lowering of a toxic protein called amyloid uh, and the FDA's feeling that the impact on amyloid, the lowering of amyloid by aducanumab is uh, promising in terms of yielding clinical benefit. So usually when a drug is approved with a full approval, you look at the safety record, you look at the phase three efficacy data and say, yes, this trial clearly helps with clinical outcomes. So there was some controversy with one study being positive, one phase three study, the other study being negative, uh, but both studies showing dramatic lowering of amyloid protein, the toxic protein that is the first change we see in the brain in Alzheimer's. Aducanumab is um, an, a, a significant step forward, not just because it targets the underlying pathology of the disease and slows progression of what is a relentlessly progressive, continuous disease. And if you can slow that down, and particularly if you can slow it at the earliest phases, when people are still living in the community, contributing to family life, maybe still working, banking, shopping, still fairly independent, which is uh, the the, uh, part of the Alzheimer's spectrum that this drug is targeting, um, then you are Uh, keeping people at a mild stage of uh, disease longer. And that is valued. That's extremely valuable to patients and families. You know, if you can forestall um, needing more support at home, moving to long-term care facilities, not only are you reducing the burden to patient and family, but also the, the cost of the disease, which escalates with the greater severity of the disease. A lot of our listeners will know about Aricep. Doesn't work for everybody. Doesn't, um, but that's the only one that I know that's been around for a long time. These are not powerful enough drugs that we are satisfied that we are we are winning, you know, uh, in their fight against Alzheimer's. So we need new therapies. All of these, as you can see, act downstream of the initial changes in the brain that are so harmful, the amyloid and tau. And that's why it's such a big deal now to start to have therapies like aducanumab and others to come that are targeting the more upstream pathology at the beginning of the disease. And if you think about any other disease uh, area, other therapeutic areas like cancer, you wouldn't wait until the disease is really advanced and start treating at a metastatic stage. You try and go the earliest you can identify the disease. 
part of the problem in Alzheimer's disease has been it's been hard to identify and be sure that someone has Alzheimer's when they're very mild, but that has changed as well with uh, new technologies for better diagnosis. So we are not just in the hopeful phase now because of new drugs with different mechanisms of action, but also because our ability to diagnose early has improved dramatically. So one of the things I know you're involved with, because I heard about it earlier this year, which was fascinating to me, which was early diagnosis through the eye, through the amyloids, but ophthalmologists um, can do it. Uh, the company is called Retispec. I know you're a big fan of theirs. I've seen written about it. It's an Israeli, Canadian, Harvard, Shiba Medical Center thing. And it's it's based in Toronto. Um, but again, this tackles the, this, this tackles detection through the eye when you're in your 40s, when you're young. How would this new drug, uh, in terms of when you would start to take it, would you be 40s, 50s, 60s, this new one? Yeah, that's a great question. So the drug um, indication is for individuals who have Alzheimer's disease and are at the mild cognitive impairment stage, which is a pre-dementia stage, or the mild dementia stage. So it's not so much dependent on age, although we know Alzheimer's disease becomes a more common disease the older we get. They would need to be symptomatic, but not at the dementia stage necessarily. They could have mild cognitive impairment. And the trick is then to be sure it's due to Alzheimer's disease. So along comes Redispec, and they've got a very fascinating technology that says, hey, the back of the eye, the retina, is the front of the brain, and amyloid in the brain can actually leave a signature or you know, a mark on the retina. And if we have a special camera that's attached to the ophthalmologist or optometrist's usual setup, we can actually detect that amyloid signature. The camera is able to see um, the eye in a different way than the usual ophthalmology cameras and to um, give a reading as to whether the amyloid signature is there or not. And so this is non-invasive, it's not expensive, it's accessible in that people go for eye exams and an ophthalmologist could participate in the annual check for amyloid. And when we get to prevention medicines, which we haven't talked about yet, and there, there isn't a marketed Alzheimer's prevention medicine, but there will be, and there are prevention trials going on, then we are going to want to screen at a population level. Everybody should be checked for amyloid and have a treatment or prevention treatment if it's if it's safe and uh, appropriate. So a Redispec scan, you know, if we can validate that against the gold standard of a PET scan or spinal fluid, will be hugely helpful in being able to scale up who can be involved and how we can access amyloid imaging it's it's mind-boggling because yeah. people but the question it's almost like getting the brca brc gene tested for breast cancer um if you know you're going to get the test you get positive what do you then do with it when you're in your 20s and 30s maybe they don't want to know because that means that they're going to be fine for 20 years and why would you worry and stress out about the fact you know you're going to get it so how do you how do you um, how do you navigate that that whole should I should I go for a test because then I'll, I can't do anything about it? You know, nobody should um, feel pressured to have a test if it's going to cause more anxiety than the good it's going to do. However, if people have 
cognitive symptoms. They deserve an explanation as to why, and they often want to know why. And although Alzheimer's disease is not a diagnosis that anybody wants to have or give, it's good to know what's causing your symptoms and then get on with the business of uh, optimizing your lifestyle, um, availing yourself to clinical trials or whatever treatments may be on the mar market. And the flip side is memory symptoms are not all due to Alzheimer's disease. That's one thing to rule out, but there are many other things that should be considered, a whole host of things. You know, is it due to stroke? Is it due to accumulation of head injuries? Is it due to sleep apnea? Or is there a medicine you're on that's affecting memory? So a, a diligent workup should, should, should be pursued and not you know, uh, people shouldn't shrink away from having their memory assessed if they have a problem. If somebody's asymptomatic, I have no memory problems, but I have a family history of Alzheimer's, then one wants to think about, is a prevention study a good idea for me or knowing my risk in greater clarity or having, you know, an amyloid PET scan? Is, what, how is that going to help me? And we're really intrigued by how many people do want to know what's going on. We're all at risk for different diseases, some we know better than others. And even in the absence of a prevention or a cure, there are lots of things people can do lifestyle-wise if they're at risk to optimize their brain health. And we do think this is worthwhile. So no, we don't want to do harm and put a cloud over people's head if they're just going to stress about a test result. It's the same with the APOE4 gene. Lots of people want to know if they carry that risk gene for Alzheimer's and people end up making healthier choices in terms of a, you know, brain healthy lifestyle, as opposed to jumping off bridges. So that would, what would that look like? And I know you have five points that you always speak about. The ones that are touted to be the most helpful are to stay cognitively or mentally active. And that can be anything from crosswords and Sudoku, if you enjoy that, to, uh, you know, a, a, giving lectures or learning about a new topic or, you know, researching something or anything that is sort of problem solving oriented. You know, it used to be said, well, physical exercise helps the heart beat better and better blood flow to the brain, but it's not just that. As far as brain health, physical exercise has another very important role. And that is that it enhances the production of chemicals in the brain. One in particular, brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF for short, which is like miracle grow if you've got gardeners out there for the brain. And then restorative sleep is another one that's often discussed and the brain is very active during sleep. And the brain also clears amyloid during sleep. There are channels that open up magically. They're called the glymphatic channels that clear amyloid during deep sleeps. And then dietary pattern is the, the other one that people talk about, um, a diet that is more plant-based or um, full of fruits and vegetables, not too much red meat, not too much animal fat, that is thought to be a brain healthy diet. And then of course, things that go along with that, not too much sugar um, or salt because you wanna keep vascular risk factors down. You don't wanna promote hypertension with the salt or get diabetes out of control with the sugar. So some common sense sounding things, but can be hard for us. We like our meat and potatoes in North America. So we don't always follow the, the most brain healthy diet, but you have a choice every day, three times or more a day. So Dr. Cohen will be the keynote speaker about aducanumab and other treatments and research. And she's giving this talk for an Alzheimer's Society webinar on January 26th. The link to sign up is in our show notes. 
And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole. He's Rabbi Emeritus at Beth Tzedek Synagogue in Toronto, a longtime fan of the show, and now he's been named a member of the Order of Canada. The award was for his long service as a rabbi and for his interfaith work, and we want to wish him a hearty Yasher Koach. And we'll end the show with a sneak peek at an upcoming episode. It's about why we can't lose weight and why we have cravings. And by the way, mine are always for Cool Ranch Dorito chips. Canadian journalist Mark Schatzker explains why this happens in his new book. We think our appetite was formed in the Stone Age and that we kind of emerge from the womb like, like these hungry ogres. We just want to stuff our face. And that's, in fact, not true. Uh, the brain controls our body weight the same way it controls our body temperature. This is a shock to most people, but anyone who's ever gone on a diet knows that this is true because in the, you know, the first few weeks of your diet, things go well, the pounds come off, you look good. But then around the six-month mark, the weight starts to come back. 